So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1447, the true cost of living for middle and lower income families today with Jean Ludwig, chairman of the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When I go around the United States and I talk to people, what they most want is that living wage job to basically live a full life. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy Monday. Our Cost of Living series continues, and we actually have tons of new features for you to pour through on CNET.com. Right now, I'll put the link in our show notes, but our team has been working tirelessly for many months now, putting together important stories on the cost of healthcare and childcare, the unemployment rate, all of these stories that illuminate the reality of living in America today and trying to make ends meet. If you ever wonder, like, how are people affording anything these days, we have some important stories that we're telling right now on CNET. And on this podcast, we're having critical conversations about the state of the economy. Today, we're exploring the true cost of living. Gene Ludwig is here. He's an American business leader and expert on banking regulation, risk management, and fiscal policy. He's a former controller of the currency. And today, he's chairman of the Ludwig Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity. There, he and his team are looking at the economic reality for families through the creation of a cost of living metric called TLC, or true living cost. It takes into account housing, food, transportation, healthcare, childcare, technology, categories that are missing from the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, for example, which comes out this week. It's a measure of inflation. He talks about the challenges with trying to raise interest rates to bring down inflation. Will it work? Yes, but there will be repercussions. He offers his insights into what may happen with the economy in 2023 and why Gene is hopeful. Here's Gene Ludwig. Gene Ludwig, welcome to So Money. Farnoosh, uh, pleased to be with you today. It's been a year. It's been a couple of years for Americans as we have been struggling with everything from inflation to layoffs. And as our, my team at CNET tries to like kind of pour through the economic data and try to get a real sense and snapshot of the true household pain, economic pain out there, it, it can be a little challenging to just trust sort of the, the, the regular data that we look at, which is, for example, the CPI data, the unemployment rate, et cetera. And so we're, look, we're leaning on really experts like Eugene to give us maybe a more holistic look at what's happening in the world, a truer picture. And before we begin, I would love to give you the floor to talk a little bit about your work and your specific interest in exploring the true living cost for Americans, this TLC index that you have designed. Well, Farnoosh, uh, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, really middle America. If you go back to my small town and uh, you, you see a deterioration in the well-being, and just, just your eyes see the paint peeling and the people on the street and how they're dressed, you see a deterioration in the well-being of middle and low-income Americans. If you're living in a big city, and I live in Washington, D.C., walk around the city, you see the same thing in terms of 
tent cities all over the place, and and you see that in many American cities. So what really got me going was you see these circumstances getting worse for people you care about. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the CPI and other numbers don't suggest there's that big a problem. In fact, it even suggests things would be better. So something's got to be wrong. Uh, and we set up an institute called the Institute for Shared Economic Prosperity in order to examine the state of the American economy for middle and low income Americans. And that's our mm-hmm. focus, middle and low income Americans. What do you think is problematic about the current ways, the current metrics that we use to measure economic well-being in this country, particularly for the cohorts you're interested in, which you say is low and middle income Americans. What's the issue? Uh, well, the, the, there, there are a variety of issues, but suffice to say that the headline statistics, which are based on concepts that were locked in stone in the 1930s, are based on ideas of the 1890s and 1870s. So they're way out of date. And, and uh, that's problem one. Problem two is that they are about huge national aggregates. Um, uh, for example, the CPI is based on a basket of goods that is 80,000 different goods. For middle and low income Americans, given their pocketbooks, they believe me, they can't buy 80,000. They can buy a very, very small subset of things they need to survive. And if you analyze the reality of that, versus the theory, uh, you get to a very different place. Now, as of this recording, Gene, I looked at the CPI number before we began recording. It's up 7.7%. Inflation is up 7.7% for, for the year over the last 12 months. And it went up actually in October um, as the cost of housing and gas and food all continued to go up. Um, is it more like, would you say it's more like double this in, in the real world? It is it is uh, dramatically understates the situation for middle and low income Americans over a, a considerable period of time. For middle and low income Americans, inflation is nothing new. So the uh, their uh, inflated costs, the things they can buy, have been fifty percent more, fifty percent more, and they can least afford it over the last twenty years than CPI would tell you. And why is that? The reason is because the things that they have to buy to survive, housing, medical care, food on the table, transportation to work, uh, and then some incidentals, clothing to go to work. If you take that basket, it's inflated much more, as I, I just said, 50% more than CPI. Uh, another good example in terms of where they are today is take housing costs. Housing costs for um, middle-income Americans have gone up much more rapidly than the CPI. I think the CPI is in the you know seventy percent increase, uh, and uh, but in, in reality, it's more like one hundred and ninety percent. Why is that? Let's just take um, somebody who is well off, owns their own home, has paid their mortgage. Uh, they don't have any more payments for them. Housing costs haven't gone up very much, and and that's aggregated in the big aggregate CPI. But for middle and low income Americans, number one, it's unlikely they paid off their mortgage. They're probably still paying on a mortgage. And and if they're looking for a mortgage, it's way up. Housing to buy a house is way up. And furthermore, a much higher percentage of middle and low income Americans rent, and that's way up. So for 
uh, the population that we care about, which is middle-income Americans and below, uh, housing costs have inflated much more rapidly from the, than the population as a whole. And the CPI understates that. So is it to say that it's really not realistic to create this sort of overall household well-being uh, metric? That assumption is is problematic and fraught that, you know, as you must say, every household experiences different wages, family sizes, childcare needs. And so this idea of trying to approach this from an aggregate is the first problem. That That is a big problem. But we have taken into account in the work we've done at the Institute uh, differences in geography and differences in family size. So we have put, put eight different buckets of different family types together. And that accounts for basically 90% of American families. Uh, the one thing you can tell in terms of that aggregate for middle and low income Americans is that things have gotten worse for middle and low income Americans, not better. And um, But as you say, there's no doubt the more specificity one can give to this, the better off one is. For example, if you have if you're a single mom with you know one or two children, you are worse off than if you're a single person earning the same amount of money and you don't have any childcare expense because you don't have any children. So let's transition a little bit, Gene, to exploring the true living cost index that you and your team have devised and how you come up with it, how you calculate it, and why you think it's a better reflection of the reality of economic life for Americans today? Well, Farnoosh, what we did is we looked at the things you have to have to survive. What is a subsistence? What do you have to have? You have to have a roof over your head. You have to have food on the table. You've got to have some medical costs paid for. People get sick. Uh, you've got to have transportation to work. And, and you've got to have some incidentals. If you look at that, middle and low income Americans can't afford much more given median income and below. Uh, so that that's a basket that is really just a subsistence basket. Um, and sadly, that's, as I mentioned, inflated more. So things have been getting worse for you besides. But there's not much else you can buy. Now, if, you ha- if you're, say, a single person and you have no child care expenses and you have a little bit left over uh, beyond the subsistence, uh, you have to money you've got to spend. We've looked at... Um, you, you know, a nice way to use this is recreation, but it's a minimal amount of outside the apartment activities that uh, you'd like to engage in. Go to a, a ball game, a, a minor league ball game uh, once a, a, a year. Go to out to dinner once a month and just uh, and we've looked at that and that's inflated dramatically and more than the CPI. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a stretch uh, for most people. So there's very little excess disposable income for uh, middle-income Americans and below, uh, and uh, even for a single person. Uh, and it's getting worse, not better. You know, you, you touched on partly why it's getting worse. And, you know, you talk about how housing has gone up significantly. And for those who are low and middle income, rent has gone up significantly. From a macro standpoint, what are some of the reasons for why the cost of living has gone up so much compared to wages. I mean, one is just that maybe wages have not been um, fairly calculated over the years and that they've been pretty stagnant depending on your industry, of course. But what are some of the reasons for why there is such a gap now between those who are quote unquote well off and everybody else? Farnoosh, I honestly think it comes down to uh, the availability or lack thereof of living wage jobs. 
What we've found when we've looked at the unemployment calculation is this. You you look at the unemployment numbers and you think things ought to be pretty good. 3.7 or 3.8% now it's reported in unemployment. But in fact, unemployment numbers calculate you being employed even if you're working 10 minutes over the last two weeks and you want a full-time job, but you just can't get it. And you find more and more Americans aren't having the full-time job they want. They're getting part-time work. We call it nicely the gig economy. But, you know, it's tough out there to get full-time work uh, at um, uh, living wage uh, uh, numbers. Uh, So that's uh, become a greater and greater problem. In addition, the the fact of the matter is that the costs of living, the basic life, have gone up. They've just gone up uh, over a long period of time, uh, more than one would like. So less good jobs, less good full-time work. Indeed, when we calculated the the unemployment number, the other thing I might mention is that it calculates you as being employed, not only if you have a part-time job and you want a full-time job, but also if you can't earn above a poverty wage. So if you're earning below a poverty wage with a part-time job, you're counted as employed. Well, functionally, you're not really employed as we think about it. And so it, it is that kind of reality that Americans, middle income and below, are facing. And uh, I think it comes down to their inability to uh, uh, have the full-time living wage employment. When I go around the United States and I talk to people, what they most want is that living wage job to basically live a full life. And so first step, you know, raise the federal minimum wage. Well, Farnoosh, sadly, the minimum wage was raised to the uh, the number of people are talking about, which is $15 an hour, is pathetically below what is needed here to give people a real living wage environment. And indeed, if it was $15 an hour, it's actually in real terms below what it was 20, 30 years ago. But right. in any case, it's not enough. And of course, as you pointed out, Things vary both by family size and also, cheap, importantly, geographic area. So $15 an hour in San Francisco, where the housing costs are enormous, is just not going to be very meaningful for you. Gina, who do you think needs to pay attention to your index, the true living cost index? And, and what are you hoping it will help to change? At CNET, you know, we've written about, for example, the unemployment rate, and how it is you know, not a true depiction of, uh, of the labor market out there. You read that and you go, okay, ne- what's next? You know, What can the average American do about this? Or really, is this just for people who work in policy and government to take to heart and to actually use to implement new laws, policies? Like, I want to know what your hope is in terms of getting the word out about this, this, this new way of measuring economic well-being in this country. Uh, Farnoosh, what you're doing is very important. The more people who know the facts, the better off we are. Uh, of course, that is in particular policy leaders. They, we, we don't want people to be able to hide behind headline statistics that, are in, that inaccurately measure the well-being for middle and low-income Americans. And they don't either. This is not partisan. Left, right, everybody ought to have the facts on the table to be able to make decisions on the basis of reality not numbers that were invented years ago and that just don't apply adequately today. Getting the word out to everybody uh, uh, so people understand how they're being affected by inflation, 
uh, in, in reality by the uh, employment availability, et cetera, is of enormous importance. And that's why we're doing this work. And, you know, also there are many social programs that rely on just the CPI index, for example, to determine whether households will get services, um, access to resources, and, and that's problematic, right? Well, Farnoosh has very well said this is very important because those social programs apply typically, and I think almost exclusively, to middle and low-income Americans. And the fact that they're tied to CPI, which understates the impact of inflation on middle and low-income Americans, means that in programs like food uh, stamps, in, in veterans' uh, payments, they, they're, under, they're, they're increasing slower than reality should say they should increase. And it means that they're getting worse off. They're, the payments they're getting, which are maybe up by CPI, are less than they should be up in terms of what they need to continue to live a decent life. I want to go back to the TLC, uh, the true living cost metric. And to remind, again, listeners, this, this includes factors such as housing, food, transportation, healthcare, childcare, technology, and some miscellaneous categories. As the world evolves and, and as you kind of look through your, um, your crystal ball, Gene, how do you anticipate this index uh, evolving over the years? Will we see weights shift or new categories evolve or some categories maybe lessen in, in their weight in the index because you do believe that there's going to be reform, um, whether it's regards to healthcare or childcare in this country. I'm just curious, as you and your team look ahead, where do you see the TLC moving? Uh, well, uh, the first thing is to give an accurate picture of uh, how uh, costs are affecting middle and low-income Americans. And of course, as you say, Farnoosh, wisely, things do evolve, and, and not just at the margins. Technology, for example, was something that people didn't have to take into account. Say 40 years ago, if you had to make a telephone call and you were in low-income circumstances, you got a quarter, you put her a dime originally and put it in the phone box and you made a call. Uh, phone boxes don't exist pretty much in America today. You've got to have your own personal assistant. And those things cost money. And, and even more, you've got to pay you know, a monthly fee uh, so that they operate. Those are, those are costs that are significant and it impact middle and low-income Americans that did not impact middle and low-income Americans at all uh, 40 years ago, uh, 20 years ago even. So we, we've got to evolve with the times too, and we certainly don't want to be um, uh, uh, criticized for having, uh, which the CPI and the other headline statistics do, measurements that are locked in time. In the, in the case of our headline statistics today in the 1930s, we want to evolve with the realities that affect middle and low-income Americans. But for the next so often, or I would say the next certainly five to ten years, the, the items that we are measuring for purposes of the TLC are pretty much the items that one ought to be looking at in terms of you know, what people can afford and the best way to understand uh, well-being of middle and low-income Americans. Mm -hmm. And maybe even a shorter uh, lens, you know, looking at the next year, many, many, most perhaps uh, economists, business leaders um, are forecasting a, a real recession where the job market will then truly reflect where they can call it a recession. And, and so in that environment, 
what are your predictions as far as the economic pain that is yet to come? The struggle has only begun. The struggle has only begun. Furniture, I'm really quite worried. The Fed, in terms of trying to slow inflation, sadly uh, believes, and it's probably the case today, it only has one weapon, and that's raising interest rates. That's sort of like uh, putting chemotherapy on top of the economy. Uh, oh, it will probably bring down inflation, but it is going to basically have toxic effects. Sadly, the toxic effects felt by a downturn are felt more poignantly, more significantly by middle and low-income Americans. The numbers for decades are the same. Middle and low-income Americans lose their jobs first and get them back last, particularly black Americans. And that means that their hopes for the future, the house maybe that they just got into and wanted to build, they, you know, uh, goes down in value. They don't have their jobs. They can't pay the mortgage, not because of their own imprudence, but because of the reality that is imposed upon them because of the Fed's need to control inflation. And we don't have the support programs in place to basically uh, uh, rectify that. Now, that's that's really terrible. It's really terrible because these are people who are caught up in a circumstance not of their own making. For whatever reason, I'm not in a position to criticize who exactly caused the inflation. It doesn't matter. But we really need the support programs for people to get through these difficult periods, particularly at the low end of the uh, economic spectrum. The stimulus is, is partly what some economists um, identify as a reason for where why we are in the place we are today with inflation. The stimulus that was uh, created during COVID-19, which I think was very necessary. And so as I hear you talking about sort of these programs and, and supports that we need to provide, how does it fit into sort of the economic ledger of this country? And, you know, if you were say, Treasury Secretary, you know, what are some things that you would move around to ensure that the lower middle income households in this country are getting the um, the proper support that they need? Uh, well, several things for Anoush. First of all, I am dubious that the COVID era uh, stimulus measures are really the fundamental cause for the inflation we're living through. At the end of the day, controlling inflation is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve. And had the Fed acted sooner uh, mm -hmm. and more, it could have acted more gently early on and sort of given a direction, pulling uh, stimulus out of the market by way of its monetary stimulus that it provided really starting back in 2008, post the 2007 crisis, that would have helped a great deal. So laying the, uh, the blame simply on the stimulus, I think, is a mistake. Secondly, if you're going to deal with the realities today, I think one has to deal with the well-being of middle and low-income Americans uh, more aggressively than uh, has been true in the past. But secondly, I think we really have to uh, look hard at what we can do to support American business, particularly American businesses that, say, go into opportunity zones or otherwise, if they're going to pay people a living wage uh, salary. And uh, so it's a two-handed, I would approach. One is to support people who are in trouble, not by their own misdeeds or foolishness, but are in trouble because of the macroeconomic circumstance. And two, uh, we've got to basically support American business so it can create uh, real middle class jobs. 
This has been such a great conversation. And, and I would love to, as a parting question for you, Jean, because you have such a, an incredible career that has spanned various economic cycles and periods in our history, if you could provide us with a little bit of context, I know that for younger listeners, especially who might be are entering into what may be their first recession or like their first period of high inflation, it can feel as though the sky is falling. This We're never going to get beyond this. And I just would love for you to provide some contextual insights, right, as to where this all fits into kind of the overall way that the economy works and has worked over the decades, where there are periods of decline and there are periods of growth. Maybe if we could shed some optimism, if possible, uh, before we leave, as we, you know, try to get back to work and try to, you know, stay focused, uh, because this can be very emotionally draining and overwhelming. Uh, I always say, I think that context can be helpful to just give perspective and maybe even um, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Farnoosh, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh, uh, here. And I think this is really important for people to understand. We are the wealthiest country on earth, the wealthiest country on earth. And America has the kind of robust economy and still robust businesses and creative spirit innovation that we will come out of this uh, and come out of it well uh, you know, and go to higher plateaus in terms of the economic engine here in the United States, uh, provided, I might say, that we can get our political house in order. And there we've got to stop bickering and we've got to get back to working together to do things in a civilized fashion. That if, if we can get the economic, if we can get the political mechanism to start addressing problems and stop yelling at each other, we can solve our economic problems. And we will. I might say you were overly nice in terms of uh, the comment about me, but I couldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't have a brilliant chief economist in Phil Cornell and a brilliant executive director at LICEP and Stephanie Allen. So it, it's teamwork. And, you'll, and the young people out there are listening. They'll find that they've got great people to work with. They already know that they've got great friends and opportunity. And this is a strong and, and vibrant co country with huge economic pluses. So um, uh, times of economic difficulty are, in a lot of ways, the best times to take stock and look to the future. Uh, one time, things were looking dire in the United States, and I was talking to a, a very famous former controller of the currency, John Hyman. Um, uh, and I said, well, my God, what's going to happen? Things are look terrible. And he looked at me in a wise way and said, uh, it's time to invest and move forward. It's going to be fine. And I think that's, uh, that's true today, too. Yeah, it's hard to think back to, for example, the 2008-2009 recession and, and just how it, every day it was like another shoe was dropping and it just felt like this is it. You know what? <laughs> Hold on to your clothes and your, you know, your family, and uh, say a prayer. Um, but we, you know, and, it, and not to say that it was an easy way out, but it was. Um, looking back, you know, it's just some. It's good sometimes to look back and have those reflections and think, okay, well, if we did it, then we can do it again. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The alignment between politics and and economics. You know, we need to find more alignment because, uh, especially folks in my field, reporters, sometimes financial journalists, or even folks who are out there giving advice, they don't want to quote unquote get political. 
But it's like you can't ignore policy and you know give advice, but but then not be thoughtful or mindful of of current policy and not have an opinion about reform or what have you, because that all goes hand in hand. And so thank you for bringing that up. I think that's always important to to remind everybody of. Jean Ludwig, thank you so much. And I would love to invite your your team back on So Money, as I know the economy is going to be the number one news story as we go into 2023, as it has been this year, but I think will continue to be in the new year. We thank you and hope you have a great rest of your uh, rest of 2022. Well, thank you for a new honor to be on the show. Uh, I'd, I'd love to come back whenever uh, you're ready to uh, hear from us. Bring the whole team back. Yeah, I'm always ready, Gene. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks to Gene Ludwig for joining us. We'll have his links in our show notes if you'd like to follow up with him or learn more about his work and his team's work. Stay tuned for Wednesday's episode. We'll be talking about the shrinking middle class with Alyssa Court, who's the author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money. Money.